What's up, everybody? It's John Bush from Armored Saints sitting here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You are on the road to rock. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin, the lead singer for the band Mr. Big, and you are on the road to rock with Clint Schweitzer. Thank you so much, man. I, I love talking about the things that I love, Clint, and for you to allow me to do it with you. God bless you. God bless the heartland. God bless America. You are now on the road to rock. It's not just a podcast. It's an unabashed celebration of rock's living legends. And now, please welcome your host, the master of your rock and roll road trip, Clint Schweitzer. What a huge pleasure it is here on the road to rock as we kick off 2024 in style. None other than famed songwriter, producer, all around good guy, Desmond Child. He is in here. And now we also, Desmond, have to add author to that list of accolades as your book, Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life, is out now. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. Well, you're, oh, you're, everything, everything's turning up roses. That's great. So no, for you. Only a week into 2024, and that's it. So for me, you know, I got to be honest, I'm a big sports fan here in Kansas City. We're in the playoffs. But we're not sure where things are going. I know the Titans, where you live, Nashville, got a big one yesterday. Do you like do you like sports at all? Do you follow sports? I actually uh, don't follow sports because I could never do them. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a dad that that would throw a ball at me or anything. So I just decided to become the biggest rock star of all time. That didn't work out. So I decided decided to be one of the biggest songwriters of all time. It's kind of really I, like a step down, but you know. No, no, it's not. I still consider you one of the biggest rock stars of all time because, and I don't know if you ever hear this or people when they when they meet you or they say like, I didn't know it for many years, but I'm a huge fan of yours and I just didn't know it for a long time. Do you ever get that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the man behind the curtain, you know. <laughs> I mean, people, you know, at the front of the ship, there's always like the masthead, right? That's, that's right. The, the artist. And then there's a, a guy in the boiler room, you know, kind of like shoveling coal into the furnace. That would be me. <laughs> so you're, you're like a cross between Freddy Krueger and the guys from Titanic that were under the ship throwing stuff and and like, yeah, oh, I, that works. That would be me. That would be me. <laughs> well, Desmond, the book, uh, it's, it's just getting amazing reviews. Uh, it's called Living on a Prayer, um, Big Songs, Big Life. I, this book is so important and it crosses so many boundaries and it get, does so many things. But I, it's funny because like uh, I was reading through the Amazon reviews and there are just hundreds of five-star reviews. Best book of the year. I can't put it down. All the great things you want to hear. And it's funny, the ones that don't give it five stars, It's always, they're always people that are hurt that you didn't talk about their favorite artist for seven or eight chapters. That's, that, that's sure. the one knock on the book. You didn't talk about, uh, you know, for... So kiss for the whole time. So <laughs> can't please them all. Right. Well, you know, uh, I was told I could only, you know, have 400 pages maximum on the book. Then Barbara Streisand's book comes out. It's like a thousand pages. And her book is like, you know, twice as thick as mine. It's like a Bible, you know? So, I mean, I guess there is a difference between Barbara Streisand and me. <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, I, I'm kind of a bigger Desmond Child fan, to be honest, but uh, <laughs> Babs, come on. And that's just it about you. 
it's like I didn't know what I liked. You're you're sort of the conduit. You talked about that. I feel like the, you are sort of the conduit between like <clears throat> what I thought music was and then what I my musical prowess became later in life and what I understood popular music was. And I think that that became apparent for me when I saw Ricky Martin live uh, and I was not a fan. I'm like, oh, I'm a rocker. I hate, you know, boy bands, forget it, NSYNC. It was around that time. And, and, and Ricky Martin came out and, and the way that people reacted to those songs. And it's like, I became a fan as he was on stage in front of me. And I was like, Oh, Desmond child wrote those songs. So, I mean, do you, do you get that a lot that people sort of like place you with certain people? And then when they hear that you work with other artists, like, Oh, wow. I guess I do like all that stuff. Well, I mean, it's, this is typical, you know, it's like, I had hits in the 80s, so then everyone thought of me as just rock. And then I went to Miami, rediscovered my Latin roots and met Ricky Martin. Then nobody thought of me as anything but Latin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then I went and worked with uh, Kelly Clarkson and, and Carrie Underwood and Clay Aiken on American Idol. And everybody says, oh, he's a pop writer. They forgot about the rock and they forgot about the Latin. You know, it's it's like to me, style is secondary. What's the primary focus when I'm working with an artist is the message. What is the story mm -hmm. here? And when people are telling a story that 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 connects um, with them, um, you know, like in a truthful way, it's going to hit people in the in the gut. And that's what you know, that's why I think my songs have a certain uh, special quality to them because they're storytelling, uh, they're uplifting most of them, and they um, you know, really help you to visualize uh, a world of the artist that is singing, singing them. Well, as someone that is a huge fan of music but doesn't know a ton about the inner workings, you've worked with some of my favorite artists from, from Kiss to Alice Cooper to Aerosmith. When you write with them, when you are producing them, when you sit in a room and you're, they, you know, bring you on or, or the conversation happens, do you feel like that you have to adapt more to them or do they have to adapt to you? Would you say well, more so? I, I think it's, it starts out with me adapting to them by the end of it, they're adapting to me. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and and they think it's all their idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and that's, I know that's that's my the secret of my success. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'd like to welcome our th second guest here. Uh, Gene Simmons is joining us here to talk about I Was Made for Loving You. I did hear your interview with Chris Jericho on the Talk is Jericho podcast talking about how uh you wrote I was you know I was made for loving you with Kiss. This is 1979, disco's huge, and uh, I think there's a funny line in the movie Detroit Rock City where the burnout rocker says, man, if it's one thing I know, Kiss will never write a BS disco song. And that the joke being, of course, they did. And the song's great. Oh, so much so, Desmond, that they played it on their farewell tour for the last three years as the second to last song of the night. And But you had the funny moment where Gene and they were kind of running it down after they'd released it. And now it's like, oh, we're back to embracing that song now here as they said farewell now. <laughs> I was so proud. I was there at their final show at Madison Square Garden, oh. uh, December 2nd, a historic night. And uh, they even uh, had like the secondary stage set up with interviews. And I went up and I talked a little bit. And uh, then I went and got in my seat and I, you know, like 
braced myself for the final show. And it was so moving, you know, it just like, it mm. broke my heart. Just seeing Paul on the stage, just looking up at me, you know, well, me, <laughs> me and, you know, 18,000 others, <laughs> me's up there, um, you know, like with this humble, like open, very vulnerable look, mm. mask and all. I mean, it was just so, so striking. And um, I was so proud and, and um, you know, it was so wonderful. Uh, one thing I did notice is that to sing that song, Paul had to fly all the way to the remote stage to sing it because Paul, because uh, Gene didn't want to be even on the same stage where it was sung. <laughs> that, that's the secret behind that. I get it. I'm glad you were there. I saw the, um, the last couple dates uh, in St. Louis a few weeks before, and it was a magical. It's, Kiss is my favorite band of all time. And one thing that I wish they would have done is done more like of a, of an unmasked like eighties era uh, kiss tour before they hung it up, because that is my favorite era, uh, crazy nights. Uh, and you know, my favorite eighties kiss song, you know, it well, my friend is you make me rock hard. That's my favorite kiss 80s song. And it's not close. <laughs> you know, you wrote that song. Uh, yeah. I, I, we co-wrote it, uh, with Diane Warren, me and Paul and Diane Warren. And the way it started out, I, I got together for coffee with Diane in New York City. And we were just sitting in a little cafe and we're getting ready to go and meet Paul uh, for our first you know, session, the three of us together. And um, we were like joking. I said, well, uh, you know, why don't we come up with like a gag title, you know, to make him laugh? You know, and so I think it was Diane said, oh, yeah, you make me rock hard. You get it? And it's like, oh, that would be so hysterical to like with a straight face, like suggest that. He loved it. And so we wrote the song and Diane's looking at me like, you've got to be kidding. He loved that? It was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> well, it's funny because the song itself is pretty, it's like got more of a serious tone. It's like very melodic and like it doesn't have like a double entendre feel to it. Like say, uh, all night or something like that. It's presented <laughs> that very straightforward, one. you know? I know. It's so crazy. It, it's become my favorite in parentheses song. You know, you got the title <laughs> and then an in parenthetical, like, you know, I've had enough in parentheses into the fire kiss it was good right. at doing that uh but that era i mean was that a tough era for gene in general because people always talk about like uh you know gene it was hard to find gene a look that made sense and like he was off kind of doing movies that was sort of paul's time to shine right i mean in the 80s well i guess so i mean i don't see it that way i mean they really are partners and they're very careful mm -hmm. with their brand and I mean, you know, there are very strict rules, um, you know, to write stadium anthems the Kiss way, and which is what Paul taught me. He's my most important mentor, mm -hmm. and he's the one that introduced me to Bon Jovi. And then, you know, the the rest, you know, of my career tumbled out of that introduction. And so, you know, I I think that you know, they were trying to do a lot of things because you know they had. Um, they wanted to keep up, you know, with the times. And so they felt strongly that they needed to unmask and show that they were really musicians. And then, you know, we could write songs like Reason to Live or Who Wants to Be Lonely, which had like a more profound emotional content. 
And, um, you know, in the end, you know, the fans weren't having it. They would say, no, we want the old kiss, you know, with the, you know, the fantasy of, of the masks and all of that. And I'm really glad that they went back to that because that's just, you know, archetypal. It's just so much fun too. And, you know, like when I worked with Alice Cooper, he always explained like, he's not Alice Cooper. He's Vincent Fournier. He's the son of a preacher man. And he had a band called Alice Cooper and everybody started calling him Alice Cooper. Mm -hmm. So then he ju it just stuck. But when writing for Alice Cooper, it makes it easy because Alice Cooper is a, a creation, a, a, a character. And he explained because, you know, he's a very moral person that if, you know, Alice Cooper, you know, cuts the head off of a doll, then guess who's going to have his head cut off by the end of the show? in the guillotine see <laughs> he always gets punished for being a bad boy and so that's the moral dilemma of the alice cooper kind of music so you know you know there, there are other characters that i've i've worked with like meatloaf and you know even share she's you know she talks about share in the third person like i don't i don't think share would sing that you know like share is share and you know <laughs> She's, uh, you know, Sherilyn. That's who she is inside, you know. Well, interestingly, by the time that you kind of started working with Alice Cooper, you talked about Kiss adapting to the times. Alice Cooper's been a chameleon his whole career. I love the Alice Cooper band stuff from the early 70s, Schools Out and Killers and all that. And then we get into the 80s, which again, I think we found my niche here, Desmond. I love the 80s Kiss stuff. I love 80s Alice Cooper. And then Trash, of course, comes out, you know, right at the end of that, 1990. You know. Alice had already been delving in that realm with uh, some a couple previous albums to trash. But like when you got there and you did that album with him, you talk about just a clean, polished, big choruses. He had the band at the time to pull it off. I think Pete Friesen was was in the band on guitars. Just talk about that experience making trash because to this day, a top five Alice album for me for sure. Well, trash, you know, the album... This is what I was told, you know, I may not be correct in these numbers. The album he had done previously on another label only sold 15,000 records. And so I was brought into the situation and I love Alice Cooper. He he's one of the the like people that I went to see when I was 18, you know, in concert at the Miami High Life Fronton 1972, April 23rd, wow. I think it was. And uh, I went in makeup, you know, with the spider eyes and all this. And I had, I have the pictures to prove it. They're all in my book. And, um, you know, I didn't even show those pictures to Alice till like a couple of years ago. You know, so um, I was like, you know, always a fan. But I didn't really let him know how much a fan I was because, you know, a producer has to kind of maintain a kind of distance, mm -hmm. uh, objective distance. You can't be a fan and produce a record, you know? Interesting, yeah. <laughs> you know, like in uh, Mommy Dearest, you know, when the, you know, Christina, uh, you know, she says, uh, you wouldn't treat me like, I mean, a perfect stranger wouldn't even treat me the way you treat me. And, <laughs> and Christina says, that's because I'm not your fan, you know? And then she gets like... <laughs> 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 so that was you you were the even though you were a man i mean and that is the incredible part because of um this incredible lineage and this 
wonderful legacy that you've last that you've impacted, you know, music with. And, uh, you know, one thing that took me years to realize, you know, kind of tying in the Alice Cooper, the trash stuff is house of fire. Bon Jovi also recorded that uh, as a demo that did not wind up on New Jersey. Did you write that for Bon Jovi or did you write it for Alice? No, 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 no. It was co-written with Joan Jett. And we started the song and she just wasn't taking to it. She just said, hmm. it's not me. It's too hard rock. I don't know. It just seems to kind of woo house of fire, you know, kind of like that. And um, so then I brought it to Alice and I had pitched it to Bon Jovi and they weren't like jumping on it. And so then I brought it to Alice Cooper and I finished it with Alice. And so the real original writers were me and Joan Jett and then Alice Cooper. And then unbeknownst to me, John had run with it and cut it. <laughs> oh. But but I don't think it was on one of the records. It was like on their like compilation much later or something like that. You know, so House of Fire was written with Joan Jett, finished with Alice Cooper. And Joan actually performed on the song in, in Trash. And uh, then it's like, you know, when I first... Um, um, played I Hate Myself for Loving You for John, um, you know, because I was writing back and forth with different people. I said, well, listen to this great song I produced with uh, Joan Jett. And I played it and he looked at me like with like, you know, Godfather eyes. And he said, fuck you. <laughs> and he just, he just walked away. <laughs> I think that may, meant he liked it. You know, you, do you get that a lot? Do you get a lot of FUs for uh, the way <laughs> these songs wind only, up in only, different hands? <laughs> only from him. Only from him. He's a New Jersey guy. Yeah. Hey, that's like, yeah. that's, their, that's their way of saying I love you, I think. I think that's the East yeah, Coast, I, think, I love yeah. you. Yeah, that is. It absolutely is. Well, Desmond, as you write, as you're going into to doing this project, why did you feel that uh, now was kind of the time to do this? And when you are putting together this project, are you somebody that goes off of memory are you just like someone that remembers everything or when it, when you get into this and you're just like oh my god i don't remember years i don't remember dates i think you do because you kind of teased it there you remember that alice cooper concert so do you do a lot of this off memory how was it when you were first putting this project together for you well first of all it's not now i started the the book um seven years ago right with david ritz and we wrote all over the world greece uh new york Nashville, Miami, I mean, uh, LA, I mean, we were writing in all these different locations. And, um, you know, I would talk, and then, you know, he would record what I said, and then have it transcribed. And then he would put it into the story. And then, you know, you know, a lot of the times he would be like, you know, kind of tying things together. And I said, no, 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 no. That's not how it worked. It worked like this. And then mm -hmm. when I thought about it further, I clarified things, you know, but, uh, you know, I had hoped that once I got it all out of my system, I wouldn't have to remember it all again, but it's, it's <laughs> opposite. I've just stirred everything up. <laughs> yeah. So seven but, years kind of in the making. Yeah. And it's very emotional. And um, I decided, you know, I'm not going to, make one of those books it's like and then i did this and then i did that and then when i got this award and that you know i mean i you I, when i read those autobiographies i just want to kill myself 
right? Um, so I just decided to make it more of an emo emotional journey as I told the story, you know, the biographical stories that, that went around them. It, it, incredible. And I mean, like I said, the reviews are, are outstanding. You can get it on the website here, desmondchild.com, or you can go to Amazon. It's it's available anywhere. I love that cover, by the way. How old were you when that picture was taken? You had to be like 30 there. No, I was 40. Oh, oh well, <laughs> see, <laughs> and now you look 55. So it all, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I just turned 70. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? So your journey is such a part of this from, uh, you were born in Cuba, correct? No, I was born in Gainesville, oh. Florida. And, um, you know, my mother had married an American geologist and he had taken her to live in the jungles of Venezuela. And wow. she became, I mean, she had only known him six weeks before she got married. She just wanted out of Havana. She was Cuban. She just wanted out of there. This is 1951, right? And so by 1953, um, she had an affair with a Hungarian uh, entrepreneur that was uh, making oil rigs in the middle of the jungles. And he was very handsome, looked like a movie star himself. And um, that's how I was conceived. But when her husband got um, wind of that she was pregnant and all that, he suspected something and he left his job and moved us, moved her and with me still not born yet to Gainesville, Florida, to a little farm in a little outskirt town, Hawthorne, Florida, where we had a dairy ranch called Cuernavaca. And, um, you know, I didn't find out who my real father was till I was 18. When I turned 18, wow. that's when I found out. And so, you know, the, the journey of, you know, and I, I mean, it's not even like she stayed with that husband. She yeah. had like three, three other ones <laughs> and met many men coming in and out of, of our, of our lives. And so, you know, you know, I sort of got rescued in a way by my, my biological father, because he had just stayed on the side watching, you know, me grow up. And, um, then when I found out, then I really bonded with him. Then everything made sense to me, you know, why I was a certain way, why I looked a certain way, all of that. And it was very um, profound, you know, and um, my, my biological father and I became very, very close because I was his first child, see. Uh, then he had another family and all this kind of stuff. And my, I love my half brothers and sisters and sister. Um, but, um, you know, mm. being, being kind of like not told the truth yeah. was very difficult for me. And so I had a very, you know, troubled relationship with my mother, which I talk about in the book. Right. Do you remember a moment or, you know, either at a concert or, or listening to a record where kind of the dots started to connect for you? where you go like, I know what I like. I know I, you know, I have this musical, you know, these capabilities and the, the dots just kind of connected and you go, this is the kind of music that I want to put out in, into the world. Uh, for me, it was hearing the music of Laura Nero, NYRO. Uh, one of my sons is named after her. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it was like hearing her music when I was 15, just like put it, brought it all together for me. I said, I'm feeling something. 
and this is making me feel like a person. I went from being just a kid to a person mm. and a feeling things that I had never felt before. And so I was going through puberty also. And, and so it was like kind of discovering uh, this androgynous part of me, you know, that, you know, I wasn't like everybody else, you know, and in the end, you know, maybe I was, you could call bi, you know, because that's what rock stars are supposed to be. But in the end, I realized I was more gay than I was bi. And so mm-hmm. that that perspective of coming into the world from that perspective, I think helped me a lot creatively, you know, because I was able to um, fit in, in a way, t- into the cultures of different bands as not a threat. You know, other other guys would go co-write and they'd run away with their wives. That wasn't going to happen. I The most I'd do is rearrange their furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Rehang so, paintings or something, you know, like. <laughs> so, I, you know, I feel like, um, you know, growing growing up different. I was Latino. I was gay. I was poor. I had a lot of things to overcome. And there was a lot of glass ceilings that I had to break through to be a success. And that's what this whole journey is about and to see that success and to see all the culmination of all that is, is really gratifying as someone that's as big a music fan as me that you've worked with some, so many of these artists, one of which is rat. Now you catch up with rat on the detonator album, sort of at the very end of, of what we knew as rat. And people always say, and this bothers of me what, of what we knew as rock. As, as well, that. that's Call a good point. That. That's a good point because we're uh, very close to 91, 92 and, and Nirvana and grunge. But in 90, people always say Rat wasn't successful because they didn't have the big ballad. I beg to differ, Desmond Child, because Giving Yourself Away is one of the best ballads of that era. And it's kind of unheralded. I think a tremendous song, but just kind of talk about your experience uh, with that song and and writing with Rat on Detonator. Well, I was invited to you know, not only write, but produce them. Uh, but it was at the time that I was kind of recording and pro- and producing my own solo album, Discipline, on Electra Records. And so uh, I was getting ready to go on a uh, publicity tour. The album was done. And, um, you know, I asked my engineer, who was now kind of out of work because I wasn't going to be making records and so I said, well, why doesn't Sir Arthur Payson produce the record? I'll be more like an executive producer. And then I proceeded to co-write a bunch of songs with them. I, it wasn't all the songs, but most of the songs. And um, it was a very troubled time for them because one of the members of their band, Robin, um, uh, you know, was having a lot of trouble. His name was King. Also, he's the sweetest looked like a Viking with blonde hair, like huge guy. Uh, He ended up passing away from, uh, you know, overdose or whatever. And so I, I was kind of helping them to, to kind of stay together in a way, like while we were writing, you know, giving, pulling them together, because when things like that happen, you know, usually the bands like fall apart and they grow, grow apart. So, um, you know, I came up with the title Detonator, um, you know, the, Loving You's a Dirty Job and, and I'm the Man to Do It. Like, you know, I came up with that. Um, 
giving yourself away, yes. But by that point, the rock uh, era was kaput. Right. It was just over. And Nirvana came in with Smells Like Teen Spirit and just wiped the whole genre and the whole era off the map. And, you know, everything was opposite. You know, in the 80s, um, men were like chest chest up. And um, in the, the, the previous era of the 1980s, it was, remember, the me generation. It was sure. Reaganites and the working class, you know, all working class heroes like Bon Jovi. You know, chests up, hairy chests up and uh, triumphant and, um, you know, real showmanship. Everything was broad like that. And people loved it. But then came this like turn and the pendulum swung the other way and the new guys came in and they they weren't virtuoso musicians. That's why they looked down because they could barely play the four chords they knew. And, um, you know, they looked down, their chests were sunken in. They wore baggy clothes instead of tight clothes. You never saw like a package on one of them. You know, you know what I'm saying? No tight right. jeans, package. <laughs> You know, or, they didn't have packages, you know, uh, <laughs> it was a rough era for me, Desmond. It was a rough era. I'm, I, you know what I like, we, you've learned this over the last 25 minutes and I, that was not, that was a rough time for me. And I was like in middle school and like supposed to be liking it, but I was always into the other bands, the, the bands that made me, you know, that, that were fun, that made exactly. me feel things. Right. So, so that it turned the other way, which was the birth of like all of these, like, modern you know what is like has now turned into active rock you know or alternative rock and um you know but it's funny as those songs kind of go come and go come and go none of it's like that memorable and yeah. they stick but yet my airplay goes up 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 with all the all the songs that i that i wrote you know during that period of time so it, it shows that human nature is such that in the end you know people you know want to be happy they they don't want to just be killing themselves and look at how many of those lead singers killed themselves that's a well, so that music yeah. led people into dark places of their minds i have brought Not that up before I like too sonics i love the angular kind of nordic kind of sounds of it i really do and some of the, the lyrics are cool and and they're very, you know, artistic and everything. But I never wrote for the critics. I was just trying to, you know, see if I could become a rock star myself. And then when that didn't work out, I just wanted to be rich. So and also, you know, the, that was my taste. My yeah. taste more pop because I came out of, you know, New York City, Brill Building, Broadway, you know, things up and big and, you know, all that. That's what I loved. And so um, not this kind of dark, morose thing. That's an excellent point. And I've brought that up, too, before about, uh, you know, and I, I I give a lot of respect to bands and artists, you know, from the 90s, the Nirvanas and the Stone Temple Pilots and, you know, on and on, Soundgarden. And it's like, man, but you do look at it. It's like those singers are have died. It's and, it, yeah. and and the Kiss is playing their last show a couple weeks ago, in their seventies because that, <laughs> exactly they lived they lived <laughs> with all their fire and brimstone they lived 
and the other guys that were cooler than thou died. It's true. Um, we'd be remiss. Okay, Desmond, the book, of course, is called Living on a Prayer. In doing research for this interview last night, I'm watching the 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 Bills and Dolphins game on TV, and Living on a Prayer is is blaring in uh, in Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, because it is a part of the American lexicon, like maybe very few songs that came before it or after. Do you feel it's, it's the don't stop believing of the eighties or of the next generation? Do you, is this your proudest moment as a songwriter or is it just another thing you did and it just happened to be so massive? I, I think it's, you know, it is pretty much the biggest song that I've ever collaborated on. Um, I, I love it so much because people have written uh, so many letters saying how that song got them through a hard time. I mean, there was even a, a letter that I got from a guy saying, you know, uh, you know, that we saved his life with that song because um, he was getting ready to kill himself. So he was kind of a little bit tipsy, went to the bridge, just jumped out of the car, left the car running, you know, windows open, uh, radio full blast. And he was leaning to kind of throw himself off and living on a prayer came on. That was his favorite song. So he said, oh, isn't that okay? Let this be the last song I ever hear. So he gets back in the car. By the time it got to the modulation at the end, he drove home. So Bon Jovi saves lives. Bon Jovi was the guardian angel from It's a Wonderful Life, literally in, in this case. Uh, yes, the exactly. uh, the, Did that song hurt John in some ways? Because like on that uh, Slippery When Wet tour, like, he, he like blew his voice out, you know, trying to sing that chorus. And like to this day, he doesn't really sing that chorus. Uh, Dave Bryan does, right? I don't know about that. Um, I've heard him sing it plenty. Um, you know, he does curse me, though, with the modulation. Right. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, they in the studio, like they pushed it like just to the max, maximum, maximum energy, maximum everything. <laughs> Because it's the epitome of, of the American dream. That song is the national anthem of the, of the American dream. You know, uh, you know uh, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We've got each other, and for love, we'll give it a shot. You know, we're halfway there, living on a prayer. You know, I mean, that, that is the um, quintessential American, you know, dream and and it's the thing that everybody tries to get here for you know to be a part of that you know beautiful dream and that beautiful experiment that we call democracy and uh you know both of my parents came from um soviet dominated countries cuba and um and hungary and um you know i've lived with this whole you know thing about like a country that isn't free. So, you know, I'm hoping that people remember, you know, what what it means to be free and not forfeit it because, you know, they think they're going to, you know, have to pay 5% less taxes or whatever they think is worth it to give up democracy for. You know, um, I'm wow. just, um, you know, I lived it. You know, I lived in the Cuban exile community. I, our family suffered, you know, from losing everything. 
and living in a country where they couldn't be free. And so, you know, I, I am a patriot. I, I love America. And so to me, living on a prayer is like the national anthem of the American dream. I, I got to be honest, I'm kind of tearing up a bit right now hearing you say that because it's um, it's a very unpopular opinion to have in 2024 in America, Desmond, I feel like in a lot of ways. What? What you just said. Uh, the, the, the idea that America is this, this, this wonderful bastion of freedom. We don't, that's not a popular sentiment, I feel like. No, because uh, somebody's, you know, somebody doesn't want us to feel that way. And why is that? Because, you know, I think that we're unduly influenced by other countries, you know, that are sending all kinds of messages to our, our, you know, to our kids and through TikTok and all that. And, um, you know, it's, it's very scary. I mean, you know, think about it. How many countries are free? You know, it's not many. And, uh, you know, many are kind of turning in the direction of authoritarian leaders. And there's no need to, you know, and the, what comes with it is intolerance. So if you don't fit into the authoritarians uh, picture of what um, what they call uh, classic American is. That's, you know, yeah. classic American is is white, you know, mm -hmm. mother, father, children. You know, that's the classic American in a world that was created on television and in movies uh, that really didn't reflect what was really going on in 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 our cities and and didn't incorporate the life of uh sure. of, of people of other other religions or, or or races um you know and so now that our country's so big and has so many different kinds of people i think that the you know it's become very threatening so now when somebody says you know um you know our we're, our our blood is being poisoned. What does that mean? Especially here in this country, there it should be no. There is no such thing. We have have too much of a lineage for that. Uh, and so, um, you know, I just saw the most remarkable movie called Rustin, and it's it's about um, the making of the big uh, speech at, uh, you know, the, the, the big speech that Martin Luther King gave mm -hmm. at the Lincoln Memorial, 250,000 people showed up for that. And uh, they expected 100,000, 250,000 huh. people sh showed up. It was the biggest gathering ever in the history of anything. And, um, you know, um, that, that movie was so moving, you know, and um, I really recommend it. It was, uh, it was a, it, it was directed by George C. Wolf, who I had worked with on on a musical, uh, on my musical for some years, and um, you know, there are many movies like that. They're really inspirational uh, to me because you know I had written a song with uh, Hanson called Weird, and that's one of my favorite songs because you know it's a sitting on the side waiting for a sign, hoping that my luck will change. Reaching for a hand that'll understand someone who feels the same. 
When you live in a cookie cutter world, being different is a sin. So you don't stand out and you don't fit in weird. And to me, that was my story. You know, I was an outsider, Latino, poor, gay. And, um, you know, the, the, one of the greatest moments of my life, well, you know, of course, is my husband and I having our own children. It's yep. documented in a movie documentary that, that we made called Two, the story yep. of Roman and Nero. And, uh, you know, when we released the, the week we released the movie um, in uh, 2013, our children were, you know, 10 years old and they were the best men at our marriage because all of a sudden we had, um, you know, gay marriage was legal. Yeah. And it was very hard fought, you know, and, sure. and now there are 66, I heard 600 bills going through the, the, the legislatures of, you know, a lot of states trying to knock that out to, you know, disqualify, you know, the, the sanctity of our marriage. And, you know, our, I think our children growing up didn't so, so much mind that we were same sex parents. What they minded was being bastards with mm. unmarried parents. And it got fixed. And Thankfully. so, you know, I hope it's not temporarily. Right. You know, with this, uh, you know, wave of, you know, what, you know, bring back you know, the classic Americans, you know, that doesn't include me. I, but to me it does. And I'm in a Patriot just like you and I, and you are, and what you've done in the music to me is the most all encompassing American dream that, that there is because music is what brings everybody together. Big songs like living on a prayer brought millions and millions of people together. That's the American right. dream. You now, are the American dream. Now, hate brings people together. I hate I, that. <laughs> I hate, I hate that. Um, so we're, you know, people are what I call scape woke. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna, you yeah. know, because it's much easier to like say, Hey guys, do, I, I, do you hate this? And then over guy over there, guys, you know, these fine people over there, do you hate this? And somehow you bring all the haters together and they feel good because now they belong. Instead of being outsiders, you know, uh, they're now insiders. You know, they feel like they belong to something in hate. And That's so, uh, you know, we saw how that ended up in Europe in World War II. And that, that could happen here. And, um, you know, like my father had to flee um, Hungary you know, because it was not a free country. Sure. And well, so, and my mother, my mother's family, you know, all of them, they ended up in Miami, you know, because they couldn't live in a country that was not free. It's intolerable to live in a country that's not free. Yes. So, you know, I, I wrote a special song for Barbara Streisand called Lady Liberty. And uh, people go on YouTube, you can watch yeah. the lyrics the lyric video of Lady Liberty, where we do a tribute to all the strong women, you know, in history and uh, of America. And, yes. and um, you know, it's funny how, you know, the, 
Statue of Liberty always represented, it was a symbol of American freedom. And, and, it, and, and you know, that was the, one of the, the first thing that my father saw when he came over on the boat from Hungary through a fog oh. into, you know, the Hudson Bay and saw the Statue of Liberty and broke down into tears oh. that he finally had reached a land with freedom. And now she's no good because she's a woman. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's inviting immigrants to our country with open arms, you know, give us your tired and your poor, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, so there was even a guy, a, a congressman that came up that wanted to go to the Statue of Liberty and rip off that beautiful poem that was written by a woman, you know, that, that is the one that contains, you know, um, uh, give us your tired and your poor, uh, and all of that, you know, the, the wretched refuse of your team teeming shore, uh, send these the homeless, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the tempest tossed to me. So I included those lyrics in my song, Lady Liberty, because to me, that's what we're about. I often fly across the United States. Hey, people, you can fly for hours and not see one city mm -hmm. or town. There's plenty of room here, you know. <laughs> and, you know, if we got everybody working, you know, we would be a powerhouse. How can China have 2.1 or 2 billion people and we're at like 350, uh, 350 million China's got like beat us on that and they're feeding everybody and everybody's working, making the stuff we buy at Walmart. Right. <laughs> yes. So, so the fact that, you know, we just need to get better organized to make, you know, take, you know, partake in the, the energy of these people that are coming with stars in their eyes that want to work hard and not call them vermin. And not call them, you know, drug dealers and rapists. I don't know. I mean, any person that I've met, you know, I mean, I have cousins that are Mexican. So I resemble that remark. Of course. And, uh, you know, I just don't understand it at all. Because the, the immigrants that come here work hard. You know, People from, you know, all parts of the world, not just Latin America, but, you know, from India and, you know, from China, uh, from from everywhere. Um, they come here to, you know, because they they get to dead ends, let's say, in their in their countries and they can't move forward. Sure. So, you know, my role as an artist and as a songwriter is, you know, I see as to bring um, more humanity to humanity. Noble. Not, our, not, our, not shut ourselves off from our soulful part. Because when you go into hate world, your soul, you, you start to take the shine off your soul. So, yeah. you know, when, when people think that they're getting closer to God, they're, it's, they're, it's quite a delusion, isn't it? Yes. How could, how could God be about hate? No. No. So 
you know, I hope that we, you know, we went through some periods like that, like um, the red scare and the, um, the lavender scare in the in the 50s, uh, Senator McCarthy and Roy Cohn and uh, J. Edgar Hoover, all these people, they came after uh, what they call communists. And if, and if you had even like, you know, turned up at a meeting to see what it was about, all of a sudden you lost your job. Sounds oh. like now, right? <laughs> culture. And then they came out after, you know, try to uncover who was gay because they gay people were considered a threat to national security. Why? Because they could be extorted. Well, maybe, but the fact is that if you're out, you can't be extorted. <laughs> So that's why the, the army, the the armed forces, finally figured out that are if their gay members, which were many by the hundreds of thousands, were out, then an enemy couldn't extort them. And then all of a sudden, How about it, was, it, you know, all of a sudden it was like it took a like a big like false narrative off of the situation. So to exactly. live in truth, to be truthful. That's what God is, because God's in the now. And if you say what is happening, the truth of what is happening, then you're living, you know, in 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 the light of God. In my in my in my view. Well, Desmond, I'll tell you, I can't thank you enough for for so many of these candid remarks, and uh, you know, the book, "Living on a Prayer," uh, big songs, big life. It's available. It's tremendous. I want to make sure everybody. Um, knows the site we've been scrolling it desmondchild.com easy to find thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you've done and for the joy you've brought to me millions of others and for some really candid remarks that i think uh, people should really take notice of and i really yeah. appreciate all of it desmond i, I appreciate you and thank That's you so much for my show. motto my motto is live and help live let's do it i'm in live. <laughs> be yourselves if you don't like something like, you know, something, it's like, if you don't like gay marriage, don't marry a gay person. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they did before. Ladies right. married gay men and they, those gay men thought that they could hide inside those marriages. And it was very harmful to those ladies and sure. to the children when the man finally couldn't deal with it, either killed himself or ran away. Oh, it's you know, suppression. Living in fear, living. There's a great uh, television series called Fellow Travelers with Matt Bomer. Oh, my God. And one of the guys from Bridgerton. Oh, my God. It's so good. And it totally explains, you know, life in America in the 50s, how people had to live in fear. And in the 80s when AIDS came mm -hmm. and it goes back and forth in time. Oh, I'm, you know, I totally recommend it. And, um, you know, it's like live and help live. Yeah. Help live, help children, help poor people, help the handicap, make sidewalks so they can roll on and off. Yes. Even if it simple. costs a little more, you know what I'm saying? Seems live, so simple. Yeah. And yet live and help live and yeah. be happy and loving. Well, we can all strive to that, Desmond. Again, thank you so much. All the best here in 2024. I know it will be. Thank you again, my friend. We'll catch up soon. Okay. 
Bye.